Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and former CIA analyst, who explains why he believes halting NATO's eastward expansion would help resolve the U.S.-Russia crisis along Ukraine's border. Rene Rojas, assistant professor at Binghamton University, who assesses the historic election victory of Gabriel Boric, Chile's youngest and most progressive president since Salvador Allende was overthrown in a 1973 coup, and climate activists Karen Igo and Kobe Owens, participants in the week-long end-of-year occupied Biden protest encampment in Wilmington, Delaware, who talk about the demands they've made on the president. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. A decade ago, North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un, first emerged on the world stage at the age of 26, during the funeral for his father, Kim Jong-il. Western observers had high hopes for change in North Korea, given that the young leader attended a Swiss boarding school and was a fan of American basketball. These hopes were soon dashed as he became, like his father, a ruthless hardliner demanding complete obedience while leveraging his nation's nuclear weapons program. Kim Jong-un continues to pour enormous amounts of North Korea's resources into his nuclear weapons program, even as his nation's 26 million people suffer from food shortages, malnutrition, and poverty. Kim consolidated power by demanding complete loyalty from the military and ordered the execution of his uncle in 2013 and the assassination of his half-brother in 2017. That same year, Kim stoked fears of a nuclear confrontation with tests of ballistic missiles that could reach the mainland United States. Trump insulted Kim as little rocket man but opened the door for nuclear diplomacy. Talks fall apart in Hanoi in 2019, and the regime continues to produce nuclear-grade plutonium. Ankit Panda of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace told Al Jazeera Kim Jong-un calls his missile program his treasured sword. He considers it absolutely essential to the survival of his regime. In the Yaqui Valley below the Sierra Madre Mountains lies Mexico's productive wheat fields, whose grain is exported around the globe. However, the low-tech methods used by farmers there includes the use of nitrogen fertilizer that has generated a hotspot for the release of greenhouse gases that are heating up the planet. When water mixes with nitrogen fertilizer and when no crops are in the ground to absorb it, huge amounts of nitrous oxide gas are released into the atmosphere. According to the Washington Post, Mexico's nitrous oxide emissions, primarily through commercial farms, is grossly understated in national climate reports to the United Nations. Nitrous oxide is 265 times more powerful than carbon dioxide in raising global temperatures. Moreover, it depletes the ozone layer and lingers in the atmosphere for over a century. Until Mexico's government regulates fertilizer use, the problem of overuse of nitrogen will continue. 
If, however, farmers turn to existing technology to reduce the use of these expensive fertilizers, they'll reduce their costs, maintain crop yields while increasing profits, and reduce the production of greenhouse gas emissions that cause climate change. After the U.S. Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United ruling that opened the floodgates of unlimited and unaccountable campaign contributions, Democrats pushed for the Disclosure Act, which would have required new reporting prior to Election Day of top donors to political ads sponsored by corporations, unions, and advocacy groups, with the top five donors being disclosed in the ads themselves. But the bill stalled due to a Republican filibuster in the U.S. Senate. New super PACs quickly emerged with corporations and special interests having the ability to spend unlimited amounts of money, and a new dark money infrastructure developed. For the next decade, over a billion dollars in undisclosed spending flooded federal election campaigns. According to the American Prospect, most of the dark money was raised by Democrats. In 2020, Joe Biden's presidential campaign raised $174 million in dark money contributions, more than six times as much as Donald Trump's $25 million. Today, Democrats find themselves in a difficult position, both backing federal legislation like For the People Act that would restrict the flow of undisclosed spending while also becoming increasingly dependent on it and the donors who demand it. Sheila Krumholz, executive director for the Center for Responsive Politics, says there's a loss of faith in our political and campaign systems that ultimately has a damaging effect on democracy. How do you rebuild it, she asks. Her answer? By being absolutely forthright, candid, and transparent. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As the buildup of up to 100,000 Russian troops along the Ukraine-Russian border continues to increase tensions and fear of war, U.S. President Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin had a nearly one-hour conversation on December 30th. After the call, Biden said he had warned Putin that if he makes any military incursions into Ukraine, the U.S. will impose severe sanctions and increase America's presence in Europe. In a subsequent call with Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky on January 2nd, Biden said that Washington and its allies would respond decisively if Russia were to invade Ukraine. For its part, Moscow is demanding a ban on Ukraine entering the NATO military alliance and a limit to the deployment of troops and weapons to NATO's eastern flank, in effect returning NATO forces to where they were stationed in 1997 before the alliance undertook an eastward expansion. Your reporter spoke with Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and an adjunct professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins University. From 1966 through 1986, Goodman served as a senior analyst with the CIA and the State Department Bureau of Intelligence and Research. Here he examines post-Cold War history to better understand the current rise in tensions along the Ukraine border 
while also assessing U.S. corporate media's coverage of the crisis. I think Putin has made it clear what his position is. He's not going to invade Ukraine. He doesn't want a larger war with Ukraine. These people are talking about Putin wanting to reestablish the Soviet Union. That, that's just blather. That doesn't amount to anything. That's not what Putin uh, is looking for. Uh, so I don't think he wants to use force in any massive way. He's, he's a gradualist anyway. When he's used force, it's always been at a, in a low-risk situation. The summer of 2008 against Georgia, uh, 2014 with regard to Crimea, and even the Syrian operation. Uh, that started about 2015. That was after the United States made it clear we wanted nothing to do with uh, Syria. Obama sent that message, and so did Donald Trump. But to invade Ukraine, you're talking about a war they could win on one level, but then they'd be stuck with an insurgency and guerrilla action. Uh, Putin, I don't think, can afford that. So it's up to the United States to recognize two things. One, they have to come up with an idea. So far, all Biden has talked about is decisive support for Ukraine. He said that to Zelensky in the meeting, uh, telephone meeting yesterday. And the other thing that I don't know if we're capable of doing it, but at some point we have to acknowledge that we're guilty of a, re of a betrayal. We made a commitment, a verbal commitment, and the Russians know this. And, and I interviewed the Secretary of State, James Baker, and I interviewed Soviet Foreign Minister Shevardnadze, and they both said the same thing. Baker told Shevardnadze, uh, in 1990, when Germany was marching toward reunification, but there were 380,000 Soviet troops in East Germany, Baker told Shevardnadze and George H.W. Bush told Gorbachev, if you get out of East Germany, we will not leapfrog, that's the word Baker used, we will not leapfrog over East Germany to go into Eastern Europe. That's exactly what Bill Clinton did in the 1990s when he brought in several East European states that were part of the Warsaw Pact. George W. Bush made it worse. He brought in three former Soviet republics, the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. And now I think Putin is in a situation where the United States is playing these games. Uh, we're the ones saying, oh, we're not basing troops in Ukraine. Uh, these aren't permanent troops. We're just rotating troops. And I think he has basically said enough is enough. He wants some commitment, some guarantee. He's asking that it be in writing. We're not going to put anything in writing. But I think it's time to say we're not going to expand NATO any further. We've already gone too far with NATO. NATO now exists with 30 members. Uh, that means we have security commitments to 29 nations, including the most recent nation to join North Macedonia, of all places. And if we're ever going to get back to a diplomatic dialogue with Putin, which is important on nuclear matters, on climate matters, on COVID matters, on international terrorism matters, where there's general agreement on all these issues, we've got to move the Ukraine issue aside. Mel, I wanted to ask you about what are the forces at work here that seem to be chomping at the bit for a new Cold War or to escalate the Cold War that's been simmering for some time now? Are we talking about the defense contractors, our members of Congress increasing the Pentagon budget year after year after year? Is there some agenda there of the sort of critical mass of uh, the powerful in our country want to see a Cold War escalate? Well, clearly, if you look at Eisenhower's formulation, his original formulation, the military-industrial-congressional uh, complex, he didn't use the word congressional, but it was in his speech. He wrote it in with his own uh, hand into the draft that he was given, and he told his brother, Milton, 
that I really think that's the problem. It's the Congress. And if you look at this vote that just took place uh, over the defense budget, uh, $770 billion defense budget. Uh, and when you add in all the various agencies that contributed to defense, you're talking about a budget of uh, $1.2 trillion, more than the rest of the world spends on defense, uh, for that matter. So this is one of the few areas in this country, and there, there are very few, where you can get a bipartisan agreement. Then you throw in the press, you throw in people like David Sanger of the, the New York Times, uh, Michael Crowley of the New York Times, the Washington Post editorial pages on uh, Ukraine, people like David Ignatius, who ran a column the other day. He's always been an apologist for the CIA, but it was basically a, a column that had to be written for him by the, the CIA that talked about all of the special covert clandestine things we can do for Ukraine after the Russians attacked. We don't, we don't want the Russians to attack. Again, the emphasis should be on the physician's adage, you know, for first, do no harm. Uh, but we need to s sort of pull back, deconflict uh, from these areas where we, we shouldn't be uh, facing the Russians in any kind of uh, military confrontation. And to be doing this over Ukraine, given the sensitivity of Russia, of uh, its borders, uh, Ukraine, that was the path Napoleon Bonaparte used to invade. That was the path that Adolf Hitler used to invade. Uh, we know about their sensitivity to their borders. And stop for a minute. Think of what if the Russians were flying TU-95 bombers uh, in the Gulf of Mexico or trying to lobby Mexico or Canada to join a military alliance with, with Russia uh, and a Russian state that's already in a quasi-alliance with, with China, in part because of U.S. obstruction and U.S. opposition. So I, I, I mentioned earlier about the need for big ideas. We have to do some big thinking, some, some new thinking, have a genuine strategic review of American interests. What the people can do is start badgering your, your congressman. That was Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a former CIA analyst. Find links to his latest articles on the U.S.-Russia-Ukraine crisis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In a historic victory, a one-time leftist student leader and progressive legislator, Gabriel Boric, won Chile's December 19th presidential election. After decisively winning a runoff election against right-wing opponent José Antonio Cast, 35-year-old Boric will become Chile's youngest president and most progressive leader since a U.S.-backed military coup led by General Augusto Pinochet overthrew the government of Salvador Allende in 1973. Boric rose to national prominence during massive protests in October 2019, when initial widespread anger at transit fare increases escalated into demands to repair Chile's privatized pension and health care system and a democratic process to rewrite the Pinochet-era constitution. Your reporter spoke with Rene Rojas, assistant professor in human development at the College of Community and Public Affairs, at Binghamton University, who assesses the major challenges that President-elect Boric will face, that includes a divided Congress in guiding the constitutional process when he takes office on March 11th. Gabriel Boric is a leader, and he, um, as such, represents a new left that has emerged in Chile over the last um, 10 to 15 years, 
or so. Like he was a key leader of a really massive student uh, movement that um, activated and mobilized 10 years ago, exactly. He represents a new kind of movement and new demands for reform from the left as a left opposition that opposed the center-left in government. Because the center-left in Chile, since the restoration of democracy in 1990, um, governed basically on a neoliberal platform, this new left that emerged um, out of mass mobilizations like the student movements and uh, student movement of 2011, 2012, and others, emerged as uh, a new political force, you know, wanting reforms that decommodified basic elements of social provision, that raised the, for instance, tax rate on the wealthy, um, that um, invested, that would invest more in public education and the public health care system that would reform the privatized pension system uh, in a series of other reforms, right, that popular movements have been demanding um, for about 10 and 15 years. Professor Rojas, what is Gabriel Boric's responsibility now as president in terms of shepherding through the changes to the Chilean constitution that are in process right now with the Constituent Assembly? What are his big challenges as he faces a divided Congress? Yeah, he's in a really tough situation. And in many ways, it's hard to think of him having straightforward success in terms of um, getting his policy platform, his proposals ratified in Congress. As you mentioned, there's a divided Congress, right, or there will be, as there has been, with one slight difference. This time around, as an outcome of the uh, November elections, the elections in November of 2021, um, the right wing actually improved its position um, in the lower house and in the Senate. So they actually can block any reform proposals coming out of the executive um, that Boric and his cabinet will present. And so what should he be fighting for, given that any real success in terms of passing his his program is, is going to be blocked by a revamped in many ways and much more aggressive right wing in, in parliament? You know, it's going to be tough. He has to deliver, obviously, on some direct material reforms around pensions, around the minimum wage, and a few other things that really were the the grievances behind the rebellion. It's going to be tough. He's got to, you know, somehow cobble together enough votes in Parliament to deliver on some of these. In my opinion, what will be his largest, his most important responsibility as president will be to once again revitalize the work of the Constituent Assembly. After the delegates were elected in May of last year and after the Constituent Assembly began operating uh, in July of this year, it really lost the initiative and it lost a lot of credibility. One of the reasons that the Constituent Assembly lost credibility was because the most visible elements of its left wing really did not perform as they should have. They didn't really take the core grievances, the core demands of the rebellion and fight as coherently as they should have around these. 
one of the things that Boric has to do, one of his main political tasks right now will be to somehow restore the initiative that the Constituent Assembly had and make that one of the key arenas of political struggles in Chile so that hand-in-hand with his government, he can claim that he uh, accompanied, if you will, or he supported this process within the Constituent Assembly to bury the Constitution from the dictatorship and usher in a new charter that guarantees some basic social rights that Chileans have not enjoyed um, since the neoliberal revolution of the 70s and 80s. That was Rene Rojas, Assistant Professor in Human Development at Binghamton University. Find more analysis and commentary on Gabriel Boric's election victory in Chile by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Starting on Christmas Day and ending on New Year's Day, more than 200 people spent part or all of that week at Occupy Biden, a protest encampment on public land less than a mile from President Joe Biden's private residence in Wilmington, Delaware. The activists who gathered there had two demands, that Biden declare a climate emergency and thereafter direct his executive departments to reject any more permits for fossil fuel projects. The week of protests included music, teach-ins, a candlelight ceremony on New Year's Eve, and a screening of the climate crisis parody film, Don't Look Up. The action ended with a rally, closing ritual, and a march as close as they could get to Biden's house until they ran into Jersey barriers in the Secret Service. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhus, who supported the action, spoke with Karen Igo, a local shop owner and founder of Extinction Rebellion Delaware and Kobe Owens, a local activist and volunteer with the Working Families Party. Together, they spoke about the week's events and plans for future actions. You have a lot of people who are Democrats who will sit back and say, hey, we have a Democratic president. We shouldn't attack a Democratic president. We shouldn't push them on their agenda. We shouldn't push them to keep their campaign agendas, which I think is sad. Um, and I, you know, when you see direct actions like this and nonviolent direct actions start to form, that is something you want to be a part of because it's going to be, it's, that's what's going to bring about the true change that we want to see. Have you gotten any pushback from Biden supporters, Karen? We've gotten a lot of pushback, people, but it's just so interesting, you know, people telling us that, um, that we're going to, you know, divide the Democratic Party you know, more. And I just don't see how that could even be possible to divide it anymore. Um, or that we're going to, you know, make it um, more risky that that Trump might be elected uh, or, you know, that we're going to have more Republicans elected in the in the next year, I guess now this year's election. And I'm just like, this is already happening. You know, we're, we're so close to losing our democracy as it is. We have nothing to lose at this point. So we, we have gotten some pushback, but we've gotten a lot of support as well. You brought a lot of groups together, and I guess you could say that climate change helped you out since the week between Christmas and New Year's was significantly warmer than normal. What did your week look like? Not only were we able to bring a a strong coalition of people together, we were able to have it be sustained for over a week. 
you know, going out there Christmas Day and then capping it off on day eight with a march and a rally um, and, and going to try to deliver a letter to the president is something that made this all worthwhile, right? The one thing that was the constant was everyone's determination um, and everyone's energy to cr- bring about change. Um, this coalition was representative of what America looks like. You had people from every background, every demographic, you have boomers to zoomers, um, and you had them all there with one, one demand, and that was for Biden to be bold. Um, and, and with that, you have declaring a climate emergency um, and also ending our reliance on fossil fuels. Um, but, you, you know, unfortunately, the letter uh, was not able to be taken to the president um, due to Secret Service and, and them turning us away. Karen, please share some of the moments from your march to Biden's house. We were talking to the police, trying to get them to take our letter. Of course, they would not. Um, and then we we talked to them about that for a bit, you know. And then we we knew we weren't gonna. Uh, we we knew we knew we weren't planning an arrestable or anything like that. We knew we weren't going to escalate our action. So, and um, we just ended up reading the demands out loud. We walked single file up and placed a flower in you know, in a, in a single file line in front of the barricade. And, uh, you know, I think, and I, and I asked all the participants to please try to make eye contact with the service people, because I felt like we really were trying to appeal to their humanity and feel one with them. Um, some people did not want to, to lay down a flower and they, um, some of them took a knee instead for a, a few moments. Kobe, what's next? Yeah, so I think right now we have a lot of momentum here in Delaware. Um, and, and we've already planted those those seeds, right? So now we let the roots start to grow. Um, and that's how we, we really built this grassroots people-centered movement. Um, I, for one, will uh, definitely be involved with any future planning of actions, um, especially when it comes to escalating this um, to bring more awareness to this issue. As we get closer and closer to the 2022 midterms, you're going to have people um, say that, you know, this is going to be an issue that we can't touch right now um, because it's election season. No, it's our job to make this one of the hottest ticket um, topics of the election cycle, because that's how you're going to get people to move, unfortunately. Um, But when we look at... um, what's happened with the civil rights movement, what's happened in 2020, and how people have changed the narrative and changed the political agendas to address certain needs because it is an election cycle. That's exactly what we need to do when it comes to addressing climate change. Um, So it's gonna be a lot of organizing, a lot of planning, Um, but I think the most important part, I mean, everyone who was involved is how can we make sure this grows? we should be able to double or even triple our numbers um, for our next uh, major action. That was Karen Igo and Kobe Owens, climate activists who participated in the Occupy Biden protest encampment in Wilmington, Delaware. Learn more about the Occupy Biden protest action by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You 
You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WZBC in Newton, Massachusetts, Global Community Radio in Geneva, New York, KODX in Seattle, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Thank you.